Our reading this morning then is from the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. If you're reading from a church Bible, it's page 977. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 13, we'll be reading the Apostle Paul talking about the mystery of the gospel revealed. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. I reminded this past week of a letter that was written in a prison cell in 1963. So Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been arrested for protesting the segregation of white and, and black people. And at that time, eight religious leaders publicly argued that African Americans should wait for the government to grant them their freedoms. King disagreed, and from his prison cell, he he wrote a letter to them explaining why. There's, There's one paragraph in particular that is especially powerful. I can't read it all with with children in the room, but about halfway through, he writes, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? 
When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your name becomes boy, however old you are. And when your wife and mother are never given the respected title, Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Obviously, I've never experienced anything remotely close to, to that before, but I'm told that there are few experiences more soul-crushing than rejection, and there, more, there are few experiences more life-giving than acceptance. We all want to belong, don't we? We continue our series in Ephesians today, uh, another letter written by another prisoner. And last week, Paul, our author, argued that the church is God's new creation. A a new society made up of people who, who used to be enemies, but who had been made family in Jesus Christ. Here, Paul writes elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as Paul expands on that theme today, his point to us, non-Jews, Gentiles in the flesh, who always used to be on the fray of God's work, his point to us today is this, you belong in Jesus church. You who were at one time despised by many of the Israelites and were spiritually speaking homeless, godless, and hopeless are now welcome in Jesus' church, brought from the periphery to the very core of God's work in the world. Now in our passage today, that truth that we belong in Jesus' church is referred to as a mystery. But when you hear that word mystery, don't think Sherlock Holmes, don't think Poirot kind of mystery, because back then a mystery wasn't so much an enigma, it was more of a secret. A secret truth that had been hidden, but in this case had now been revealed. And Paul will say that the truth that we Gentiles believe belong in Jesus' church used to be concealed, but now it's been revealed. And what I want to say to us right at the outset of this message, friends, is that the more you understand about Jesus' church, and the more that you understand about yourself, the more amazed you'll be that you belong in the church. Like many of you, I I grew up going to church every Sunday, and I was as bored 
as bored could possibly be. In fact, my, my sister, I remember one Sunday afternoon uh, after church, and me and my sister were really, really close actually, but, but one day she, she asked me uh, over uh, the, 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 the dining room table, how many tiles were on the ceiling this morning, Hugh? Because that's just all I did. I just did anything but listen at, at all. But friends, now, the more I understand now about the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more beautiful she appears to me. And the more I understand about myself, that I am a sinner saved by grace alone, then the more deeply in love with the church I fall. And my hope and prayer for us today, friends, is that as we walk through these verses and as we walk through Paul's great letter to the Ephesian church, that would be true of you too. You would be all the more amazed that there is a place for you, a, a, a seat for you in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've borrowed, borrowed my outline today from a great commentary on these verses. I don't want any of you to think that I'm uh, clever enough to have thought something like this up myself. Uh, but today we're going to see, number one, the mystery revealed to Paul. And second, the mystery revealed through Paul. Number one, then, the mystery revealed to Paul. Look at verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now friends, I have a suspicion. And my suspicion is that these verses that you just heard me read are the verses that mean least to us in the, in, in the whole letter to the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter 1 sticks in our minds because Ephesians chapter 1 is as glorious as it is controversial. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Ephesians 2 is lodged in our heads because the language is as vivid as can be. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Ephesians chapter 4 is tattooed onto the eyelids of every church leader because it's there in Ephesians 4 that God's master plan for ministry is, is unfolded and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We've all heard Ephesians 5 preached at weddings. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and we love Ephesians chapter 6 because that's where Paul commends the whole armor of God to us. But my guess is the verses I just read are a blur to us at best. Why? Because when Paul finally tells us what this mystery is, that we believing Gentiles are 
one and the same and equal were believing Jews, we sort of think to ourselves, well, big deal, Paul. What is the big deal? And Paul, you know your Old Testament. You, you know that God promised Abraham that through his offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. So what is the big deal about our equality in the kingdom of God? Well, part of the big deal, friends, is how our equality in the kingdom of God was achieved. Look at the last three words of verse 6. Through the gospel. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles, that's us, are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ask yourself, friends, who could have imagined that believing Jews and Believing Gentiles would be made equal through the crucifixion of the Son of God. Who, who could ever have imagined that a, a spotless Savior would bear all of the filth of our sin and the full weight of our iniquity and the horror of our trespasses in order to clothe us all equally with his righteous robes and make us equally holy in God's sight. Friends, here is a mystery that is so profound it could only have come from the infinite mind of God. And it's a big deal because the gospel that tells us that we are equals in the kingdom is a gospel that tells us so much about God and it tells us so much about ourselves. This gospel that makes us equals, it tells us something about God. It tells us that God's heart is bigger than we think it is. That it's big enough to receive all who call on His name. Jews and Gentiles, sinners from all races, from all nations, from all ethnicities, from all people groups and from all times and all cultures. That yes, narrow is the way that leads to life and few there are that find it, but big is the heart that receives those who do. And this is what enraged the religious leaders of Jesus' day, wasn't it? Why? Because they assumed that God's heart was as small as their hearts were. So that when Jesus Christ brought a God-sized heart from heaven to earth, they were scandalized and offended. In fact, you remember one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she, when she learns that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, the church that I was raised in didn't just have lots of tiles on the ceiling, uh, but it was also a, a very evangelistic, outward-looking church. And there was this man who was married to one of the women of the church. He was a church member. He wasn't a believer. And he hardly ever came to church, maybe once a year, twice a year, something like that. And when he came to church, he would just sit there. Since, since I wasn't listening and just had time to look around at the balcony and look at all the people, he would sit there looking about as uninterested as anyone could possibly look. And after 30 years or so, he was finally saved. He was converted. And do you know what he learned? He learned that God's heart was big enough to receive him. And you know, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, friend, frankly, I do not care how long you've been running from God. I don't care how long you've been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What I care about is that you would understand right now that if you were to turn away from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be enveloped into a heart that is big enough for you. A heart that is big enough for all. Listen, are you a Jew? Then God's heart is big enough to receive you if you'll repent and believe on Jesus. Are, are you a Gentile? Then God's heart is big enough to receive you if you will repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would do that today, then you would find for yourself that you would fit in in this church just fine because we're all a bunch of equals here. Uh, we're equally sinful and we're equally forgiven, equally 
dead in trespasses and sins, equally alive together in Jesus. And that is all that matters for our acceptance in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an equality that matters. But you know, friends, this equality tells us something about ourselves as well. Not only tells us something about God, but this gospel that makes us equal, equals, it tells us something about ourselves as well. And what it tells us about ourselves is that we are more privileged than we think that we are. More privileged than we think we are. I said a few weeks ago, didn't I, that I think believers in our circles, believers in this church, we, we have a good intellectual grasp, at least, on the, on the total depravity of man. But I'm not convinced that we have a correspondingly firm grasp on our privilege and status and identity in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you feel in this moment, did you feel when you were coming to this building today like a prince or like a princess of heaven? With the blood of the king of kings flowing through your veins. Is, is that how you felt when you woke up this morning? I think most of us would hear that question and we would just say, no, not, not really, Hugh, no. But friend, when you were welcomed into the church of Jesus, a profound transformation took place in your life so that you are not who you used to be. The old is gone and the new has come. There was a time when we couldn't even enter the temple in Jerusalem. But the Bible tells us now, we are God's temple. And He dwells in us. And His name is in us. And so we're privileged beyond measure. And we are favored beyond our wildest dreams. And we are loved with an everlasting love. And the extent to which we get that... And the extent to which we believe that will be the extent to which we fulfill our calling as a people to the praise of His glorious grace. That despite everything going on in our lives, our grief, our failure, our suffering, our disappointments, our anxieties, this is who God has made us. And by the grace of God, we are who we are. And there's no one that can unturn that. No one that can reverse that we are by grace what we are forever. And forever we shall be. And so if I've said to you in the past weeks in this series, remember your identity in Christ. And friend, let me say to you now, realize your identity in Christ as well. This mystery was and is a big deal. And it deserves a big fat slab in Ephesians chapter 3 and in our minds as well. Well, that was the mystery revealed to Paul. But it was also, also the mystery revealed through Paul as well, second. And in verses 7 to, to 13, Paul holds up his calling to us to make this mystery known. And he, he turns it in three directions. So, Imagine with me now a, a multifaceted jewel that shines as you turn it from side to side.
to side. And he, he tells us that he was called to, first of all, announce this good news. Just look at verses 7 and 8 there. Paul writes of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to, to do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the word there for preach is a little bit more literally announce. To announce to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To announce that his favor is inexplorable. And that his love is untraceable. And that his mercy is unfathomable. And that his goodness is inexhaustible. And that his wisdom is illimitable. And that his power is inscrutable. And that his victory is incalculable. And then he turns the diamond to the left. And he tells us that he was called to not only announce this good news, but also to enlighten those who were in darkness, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Do you remember that this was the mandate that, that Jesus Christ put on his life when he met him on the Damascus road? What did he do? He blinded his eyes and then he said, go and open the eyes of the blind. He said to Paul, Paul, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering from your people and from the Gentiles to those whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then he turns the diamond again. And he says that the angels in heaven sit up and they take note. When they see what God is doing in the world through the church. Look at verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And the word for for manifold there is actually multicolored. Meaning, when people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and ethnicity come to Jesus Christ, then the angels from their view in heaven witness the weaving together of a multicolored brand new creation and they are amazed at what they see being joined and weaved together. And therefore, friends, if the angels in heaven are amazed at the church, then should not we be amazed at the church as well? Sometimes people ask Gloria, uh, what do you miss most about California? And her answers are as follows. Number one, family. And number two, Mexican food. And I remember once 
uh, going out to get some Mexican food with a, a friend of mine. Uh, I think we're really close because we're so different. So this friend of mine likes to stuff a handgun down his trousers, which to me is a little bit odd and a bit unnecessary when you're just going out for some food. And I remember him giving his order to the, the, the waitress and dying a little bit on the inside because as he was giving his order to the waitress, he was making some very, very specific demands. So it was things like, now, with the rice, make sure that you don't, and, and with the tortilla, make sure that it's cooked like, and with the meat, I need you to remember it too. And as a Brit, I kind of felt like I'd rather choke on my food than, than do something like that myself. Uh, but you know, the truth is, in the 21st century, the exact same consumer mentality exists in the church. A, a, a mentality that says, I'll take, but I will not give. I, I'll get what I need, but I will not be inconvenienced for others. I'll have my uh, top up of spirituality. Thanks very much for that, Hugh. Uh, but I'm not going to pour myself out into the soul's of anyone else. But friends, how can we do that when the church is central to God's eternal purpose in the world? Look at verse 11. This, this formation of a new humanity, a multicolored people, this was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so friends, here, here we are this morning. We're just a bunch of, of ordinary people, aren't we? Uh, not many of us were wise when we were called. Not many of us were noble. Not many of us were powerful when we were called to belong to Jesus. Our, our pastor looks like he's about 12 years old. Uh, our building uh, needs a little bit of, of an update, shall we say. And uh, the entertainment value in our services is at zero. And the angel Gabriel stands in awe of us and is amazed at what he sees. Why? Because we are the blood-bought fulfillment of an eternal purpose that God made before the ages began. He can't quite believe what he sees. And so, friend, if you are a believer today, then be amazed that Jesus' church is your church. And the evidence that you are amazed that you belong to the church is that you're willing to be inconvenienced for the church. Now, where am I getting that from? Well, look at verse 13. Paul writes, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. How is Paul suffering for them? He was suffering for them in the sense that he was in jail for the very message that the Gentiles are equals with believing Jews. That's what got him thrown in prison. So in other words, if Paul was, be, it was willing to be imprisoned for that truth of our equality in the kingdom, can we not be inconvenienced for that truth? Friends, I know we're not perfect. And can I assure us all today that I feel our imperfections ten times more than any of you do. But if the church was worth Paul's impr imprisonment, then friends, surely the church is worth our patience and inconvenience. 
I want to give the last word of this sermon to John Stott, who's just so helpful in the book of Ephesians. And he, he, he writes this. He says, how can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? No, he writes. We must seek to become responsible church members, active in some local manifestation of the church universal. We must not be able to acquiesce in low standards which fall far short of the New Testament ideals for God's new society, whether mechanical, meaningless worship services or fellowship which is icy cold and even spoiled by rivalries which make the Lord's Supper a farce or such inward-looking isolationism as to turn the church into a ghetto which is indifferent to the outside world and its pain? If instead, like Paul, we keep before us the vision of God's new society as his family, his dwelling place, and his instrument in the world, then we shall constantly be seeking to make our church's worship more authentic, its fellowship more caring, and its outreach more compassionate. In other words, like Paul again, we shall be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn the vision into a reality. Well, amen, amen, and amen to that. Let's pray together and we'll stand and sing. Father.